the reality is if I were to interview 10 people, what their actual struggles are would probably be very different from what I would prescribe. And so it might be difficult and uncomfortable to say, oh my gosh, this neighborhood is suffering from the consequences of redlining. What we need to do is really make sure everyone owns their own home. But if you went and interviewed all of those people, their perception of their need and what would actually help them and where their struggles are might actually be very different. You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javit, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. Hello and welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javit. Today, I'm joined again by Tiffany Owens-Reed, an expert on cities. And today we will continue our conversation um, on uh, the topic of uh, understanding our cities better. Uh, Tiffany is a graduate of the King's College and former gen- journalist, and uh, she is a New Yorker at heart, currently living in Texas. She curates uh, content for cities uh, Decoded, an educational platform designed to help ordinary people understand cities. So thank you for joining us again today. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. Well, let's continue where we left our conversation about infrastructure and uh, urban uh, church. So why would the layout or infrastructure of a city matter to an urban church? We were talking about that. Let's start there. And then I want to ask, can you uh, share about racist uh, policies such as the uh, redlining and how they shape uh, our cities today? So let's go back. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit. So just to kind of recap, thinking about infrastructure in this multi-dimensional way, right? Thinking Mm -hmm. about our physical infrastructure, our economic infrastructure, our social fabric, our um, oh, I think a political. I think I had another one in there. Um, But again, the basic definition of infrastructure is it is a system that facilitates life, right? It determines how life. When you're thinking about cities as an ecosystem, right? Ecosystems are containers for life. Infrastructure are the systems that make that life. They're a collection of systems. Mm. Ecosystems collect systems. Infrastructure sustains those systems. So Mm. because humans are complex, we don't just need roads to survive. We also need relationships. We need mechanisms for distributing, for making big decisions about the public sphere. So there's your politics. We need to be productive. There's your economics, right? So so we have, we need this like multi-paradigmatic way of thinking about cities and what it means to flourish in cities and, and also what does infrastructure mean? And so it matters because these are the systems that sustain our shared life. It mm-hmm. also matters because these are the systems that determine change, how change happens. You can't just have a random idea and run out in your city and like do it, you might be breaking the law. You have to kind of orbit, you have to navigate these systems of change, whether you have to do some work on the political side of things, you might have to do some work on the economic side of things, you might have to build some relationships in the social side of things. So you really have to understand all those layers to to advocate for meaningful change. Um, And all of those things, I I would, yeah, just going back to the the theme of visibility, Kind of what we've been talking about, the way a city is designed, the way a city is laid out, the way we make decisions about land use, about transit, about where businesses are located. Those are the things that are going to determine how visible other people are in your city. So here in Waco, I can 
go for a walk for 20 minutes and not see a single person. Some people might love that. <laughs> I would prefer to see the kids on their scooters, you know, the, the, the business people rushing to their meeting because they're late, you know, the, 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 the delivery guys bringing the food in to, to the cafe. I love seeing the, what Jane Jacobs called the ballet of the streets, right? Um, and so the, the design decisions we make are going to shape how visible we are to each other. And that can have, that has serious implications for what we've been talking about, being sensitive to human suffering, discerning where God might have us be serving, how he might have us use our gifts in our community, right? Seeing sin and depravity so that we can be warned to, to, to stay in line with God's teaching, right? To see what happens when, when, when man rejects God's truth, that cities play a really important role in that, but also to see God's grace and mercy at work um, and to see him redeeming things when, you know, constantly. So, so cities make that visible, but yeah, the, the design decisions you're going to make, you make in your city, those, those infrastructure decisions, they're going to shape those, that type of visibility. They're, um, they're also going to shape our values. So values you hold as a person can be extremely, will be shaped by the ecosystem, the type of polis that you inhabit, right? Mm -hmm. So whether that's having a really strong value on individualism or really strong value of communitarianism, right? A, a lot of times when you look at these historic debates, it's not a surprise if you can trace it down to people who lived in particular kinds of environments. So the environment you live in will shape your values. So that's another reason why this matters. Um, and um, again, just thinking about cities as the sort of stage where we live out our values, especially as Christians, where we live out our theology and where we're shaped, hopefully, into virtuous human beings that, that are glorifying God. Um, I think specifically for a church, you know, that, that might be all nice and abstract and everything, but why does this matter to a church? I just think what we've been talking about with identifying ways to make our mission and the gospel to, to, to make it more tangible in the world, understanding the ecosystem you live in, um, can be a really powerful way to be, um, more specific and intentional about what that service will look like or what, what your blessing to the world will look like. Um, so that, that's a, that's a recap. I think um, kind of synthesizing a lot of the stuff that we've been able to talk about. That's great. Now let's take to the next questions, which, which still related. Can you share about the racist policies such as redlining and how they shape our cities? today. Yeah. So I think the context to this is kind of what we've been talking about with like cities are a stage, right. For human behavior, <laughs> for, for us living out our values, mm -hmm. also for us to express sin. And I think when you're look, studying um, American city, when you're, when you start to discover these policies like redlining and other practices mm -hmm. designed to prohibit um, different groups of people from living in certain parts of the city, you know, I think one important context to keep in mind is the theological teaching of sin, um, which is both a call to take it seriously and in a way a call to not take it too seriously, right? Because it's if that makes sense, um, I think there can kind of be a tendency to over agonize about some of these things to the point where they become a burden. Um, and, 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 and Christians might feel like there's nothing else more important than thinking about racism. Um, and I think the beauty of the gospel is that it calls us to confront sin and also to um, get to work working on redemption, right? And to not let ourselves be too overly burdened by, by human failures. But let's get into specifics. So there's a lot to say on this, but I, I kind of narrowed it down to 
um, let's, so redlining you brought up, um, there's an agency called uh, the HOLC, the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Oh. Redlining was a practice encouraged by this agency, but in order to understand where this came from, you kind of have to take three steps back. The first step you have to, the first thing you need to keep in mind is the Great Depression. Then mm -hmm. World War II, right? Pulls the nation out of the Great Depression because of all this economic production that's needed to supply materials and, and, and goods needed to, for mm -hmm. the war effort. Well, then the war ends and everyone is starting to panic on the political and economic side because they're like, oh no, all of that economic production is going to stop and we're going to go straight back into a Great Depression. So the idea for preventing this was to basically reconfigure the American landscape, the American literal land, <laughs> um, in such a way that it would generate the kind of economic behavior that could keep the economy from crashing. Mm -hmm. And the way that that president, I believe it was, I did not bring my book with me, I believe it's President Hoover. There were a series of presidents that kind of moved in this direction, but basically what they decided was like, well, people already have an appetite for the suburbs. We're kind of seeing people having an appetite for leaving the city, having their own house and their own plot of land with their own car, buying a bunch of stuff to fill it up. And it kind of clicked. It was like, well, if we can get the entire nation to do that, there'd be a whole lot of people buying a bunch of stuff and more or less keeping this economic, this economic machine running. So that's sort of the economic context behind why we saw what, why the government got into the business of subsidizing suburbia. Mm. Um, Cause that's really, that's really the background to all this is like trying to prevent economic collapse partnering with the real estate industry and the automobile industry were kind of the ways of, uh, that was the strategy. So th th these are going to be the, our tools that we use to prevent this, another economic disaster. Um, so through a series of legislation, had various presidents basically establish certain agencies, FHA, Federal Housing Authority. Um, I'm not really good at remembering a lot of the stuff like off the top of my head. I kind of have to have it all written out. And um, I don't have that right now. Um, but basically, the, the 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 bird's eye view is that you have the government, the real estate industry, and the automobile industry shake hands, and they all and the government gets to work deciding well, what do we need to put in place to incentivize this consumer behavior that we want. And part of that was subsidizing um, housing development, was subsidizing uh, roads so that it would make more sense to buy cars. Part of it was dictating basically how how cities could be designed if they wanted to qualify for this type of funding um, in such a way where people, it was a lot of single family homes. So again, incentivizing single family home ownership, a lot of roads and businesses separated from the neighborhood so that everyone had to drive, buying a bunch of gas, again, you know, fueling this economy. So they kind of just created this whole pattern of life that was oriented around consumerism, buying a bunch of stuff to keep the economy running. Mm -hmm. um, but then this question comes in, of um, sort of the socioeconomic layer gets layered onto this. And we see through redlining, through discriminatory zoning, through um, urban renewal, which is actually urban destruction, when you really understand what was going on. And even through public housing, um, you see American cities begin to struggle with a reality that literally every city since the beginning of cities have struggled with. And that's with what do you do with a bunch of different people sharing the same space, right? Sharing public space. Um, if you read the history of any major city, you'll see this tension play out and real in along different lines, whether it's immigrant lines, immigrant groups fighting each other, right? Whether it's black and whites, 
whites fighting blacks. You'll see it all over, the, like all over the world. It's a global problem. And this is mm -hmm. where I think where you, Christians can really look at this and say like, okay, <laughs> this is a sin problem. Like just this desire to, to consolidate power, to consolidate resources, to, to, to discriminate, to prevent people from, from living next to us. Right. It's like, where does this come from? Like, what is it in our hearts that makes us want to, to, to push people apart um, and to, to keep people from accessing land, keep people from living there, to keep people from accessing economic power. So what's happening in the U.S. at this time is not unique to the U.S. There's actually a huge global history context leading up to this. Or It's actually just one chapter in a big global story of discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and it's one of the first things you notice when you start to study the histories of different cities um, is sort of the, the, the question of it's sort of this power grip. You see power play out in the way that land and housing is distributed. Um, so uh, yeah, just that tension over in, you know, having a preference for your own group and uh, see the oppressive tendency to, to keep other people from accessing what you perceive to be a limited source of power and, and, and economic privilege. Um, this is how it played out in the U.S. So you had, so basically going back to the HOLC, um, they were an agency established by the federal government in charge of establishing the creditworthiness for home loan refinancing. The home loan refinancing was one of the tools that the government was providing to homeowners um, to encourage them down this path of like private home ownership, et cetera. Um, so the idea was that this office would be the one in charge of making sure that the government was going was going making sure they wouldn't end up backing a bunch of untrustworthy like uh customers basically because mm -hmm. they're backing the banks and the banks are giving out the loans so they were like okay we have to have a bunch of criteria for how you give out these loans because we're backing you now so we can't have you just giving loans to anybody so what they did is they took all the maps of these different cities and they went through and they had their little agents who literally went through each neighborhood classified each neighborhood based on a set of criteria and then came up with a color code for, for the city. And the color code would tell you which neighborhoods were most stable and trustworthy, which neighborhoods were most risky and untrustworthy. So probably wouldn't get any, any financing. This is where we get the term redlining because the neighborhoods that were the most risky would get outlined in red. Um, and those generally where you're more poor and generally black neighborhoods. Um, this did not prevent all black people from accessing this incentive, but it was it, it was very influential in preventing many black neighborhoods from act or just black individuals from from accessing home ownership as a as a means of building wealth and and, and improving their mobility right um and also depressed entire neighborhoods so that they were no longer participating in the natural cycle of investment and reinvestment right so when you have all a bunch of incentives keeping investment away from a neighborhood you kind of trap it um in a state and a stagnancy um and then also um, it, yeah, so it just prevented black families from accessing wealth, locked neighborhoods into patterns of perpetual disinvestment. Um, and then you had other policies like some pretty explicit racist policies, uh, banning blacks from living in certain neighborhoods, um, preventing homes from being passed on to black residents. Um, and uh, then you also had the urban renewal program, which was all about getting rid of slums, which were basically mm -hmm. poor black neighborhoods and replacing them with highways. So that really just destroyed a bunch of 
Black communities that had been um, building, you know, their neighborhoods and establishing small businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and you can read plenty of stories of those, um, that, 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 that era of renewal. Um, and it's really, it's really sobering to read, to read those stories and to, to um, think about this period in our history mm. when um, our, I think fear really plays a big role in this, like fear over of the other, right? Mm -hmm. or, or, or just a prideful grasping for power and for safety and for um, just this sort of curated view. And that's really the heart of suburbia in a lot of ways. When you read back into where it first came from, um, it really was just kind of these values were at play of like hyper emphasis on privacy and having a curated life right around mm -hmm. like the things that make you comfortable, which literally cannot happen in a city. Right. You don't have that luxury in a city. Mm -hmm. So it really was a strong like negative reaction to the pressures and the challenges of the city that even led to this pattern of life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really think it just gives us a lot to think about and a lot to wrestle with um, as we're asking ourselves like well, what does it mean to, what does it mean to meaningfully inhabit our communities as individuals and as churches? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a, not a comprehensive, um, but just a little bit of the iceberg when it comes to understanding how this um, very old and very global expression of sin played out in the U.S. and mm. in our U.S. cities. Redlining was um, outlawed in 1968. Um, but many cities have continued to struggle with the consequences of that period of disinvestment, right? Mm -hmm. And that can just be really helpful context for churches and for pastors who are seeking to better understand their city, um, better understand the, the unequal distribution of wealth in their city. Having this story to, to layer over many other events, I'm sure, um, can just be really helpful to understanding like why you know why has this neighborhood for instance struggled to keep up with paces with like the natural cycle of investment and, and improvements that we might see in other neighborhoods this yeah. this might provide a helpful helpful perspective on that yeah now as it's a I, I think it's very helpful for the audience as well and uh, I think the president you were talking about 1933, I, I did look up while you were talking, mm -hmm. uh, Franklin uh, Roosevelt uh, administration um, initiated that, um, HLC. Um, yeah, so there were, I know, I, I feel like Hoover, Roosevelt, Johnson, Eisenhower, there, mm -hmm. was, a, there was a whole season, mm -hmm. like they each played a different role kind and in, in, in this whole saga, which is, you could honestly have a whole different podcast just on the, the when the government when the government gets involved in shaping our cities, like there's just so much to unpack there. So yeah. many laws, so many agencies, so many debates and questions and yeah. pushback. But you know, so many different lobbies, mm -hmm. the 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 real estate lobby, the automobile lobby, you know, pushing for certain outcomes. So it's really quite a dramatic story. Um, there's a really good book. I'll find it really quick. Oh, I might have to send it to you. Um, I'm my brain cannot remember. That's yes, okay. That's all right. And I think when it comes to back to our, uh, um, you know, the connection of the church in this whole mm -hmm. uh, problem. What are what are ways that policymakers can work toward correcting the injustices caused by racist policies? And what role can urban pastors play in that work? Yeah, so um, 
racism is a really big problem, but I don't think one person's going to solve, you know, it's just, it's, it's a state of the heart, right? It's a spiritual problem. Um, so I would, I would warn against putting too much pressure on yourself. <laughs> um, even trying to solve the effects of redlining is a really tough mm. challenge. But the good news is that we do have frameworks that can help us get to that in our specific context. So localism, I think, is a great framework for thinking about solutions uh, because injustices of these sort, they're they're hard to correct. They're, they're happening on such large scales, right? It's something that our whole country went through. Um, but I think if instead of thinking about, oh my goodness, how are we going to stop racist policies? Or even, oh my goodness, how are we going to fix the effects of redlining in our city? We can say like, all right, let's get to know our neighborhood really, really, really well, right? Or mm -hmm. let's say maybe our church, you know, represents four neighborhoods. Okay, great. Instead of worrying about the full scope of this problem, let's just get really good at knowing our four neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Let's get really good at knowing the history of those neighborhoods. Let's see where some of these policies may have had an influence in these neighborhoods, right? Um, I think that's really a good place to start. Um, is really just getting hyper-specific about the particular place that you care about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think starting there, um, and I think having realistic expectations about what it means to fix this, because you right. can't go back in time. You, you can't, this is not like, oh, that I made, I tried making banana bread over the weekend and for whatever reason, it just completely did not turn out. There's nothing you can do at that point. You have to throw it away and start all over. We don't have that option with our cities, right? Mm. Um, I make sourdough bread every week. And when I was first learning, there was this period where uh, my dough was not turning out correctly. And I Googled it and did some research and I figured out what was happening is I was overhydrating it. So you have to maintain a certain, a certain ratio between water and flour in order to get the right kind of sourdough dough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was, I was making a mistake in my recipe and putting way too much water. And when you do that, the dough just stays really, really sticky. Mm -hmm. The good thing about sourdough is it's, it's extremely adaptable and, and forgiving. And I was reading all these, tips about what to do. And it was like, oh, just turn it into this, turn it into focaccia, turn it into a pizza crust. That's kind of how we have, there's nothing you can do. The water and the flour have been mixed, right? Um, you can't separate those two things and start over. So what, how do we move forward with this, right? Mm -hmm. That's, a, it's a really bad analogy maybe, but it can kind of help set expectations for like cities or ecosystems and you'll put something in and it'll affect it. It's not a system you can go in and take the bad thing out and everything just goes back to the way it was before you put it in, right? Cities as ecosystems, they adapt, unfortunately. If you watch like an ecosystem in nature, you know, you introduce like a, a, a foreign species of something, you have to get that in order to save the ecosystem. There's very, I don't really know of any cases you can go in and just completely remove the problem and things would go back to normal, right? Mm -hmm. You have to either, you have to find ways to either adapt or you have to find ways to strategically leverage other tools to, to kill off that weed, right? Mm -hmm. you, but you have to, it's like a different mindset almost. And so since cities are also ecosystems, when you study these histories of policies, you kind of have to think of them as the same way, like invasive species that mm -hmm. we can't just uproot without destroying the whole ecosystem. Yeah. So I would say kind of, thinking more robustly about what we're going for when we talk about like solving these problems would really help. I think taking a hyper-local perspective is a really great place to start. Um, but then uh, a couple other things to keep in mind when you're thinking about like inner city poverty or 
socioeconomic or racial inequality. Um, I think it's really important to keep in mind that policies like rent lining are not the silver bullet explanation for a lot of the present day inequities that we're seeing or disparities that we're seeing. Um, so it's really important to get a local story, to really understand the story you know, if you're in an inner city church, or if you really, if this is something you just really feel called to, to, to work on, it's really important to understand, yes, redlining and these policies definitely perhaps played a really important role. We also have to look at culture. We have to look at the globalization of the workforce. We have to look at uh, family patterns that emerged in the 80s and 90s, right? Those are just three things off the top of my head based on research I've done and that are really important to take into account as well. So you really want to try to avoid single narrative explanations and try to be as holistic as possible and really honoring the story of these communities by by turning every stone, asking the hard questions like where personal choice, where culture, where systemic policies, where, you know, the globalization of the workforce is not really something anyone could really have predicted how severely it would have shaped inner city communities. Um, where do all of these things come together, right? And and really not not seeking to like think you're going to solve all of those, but just kind of really honoring the story of the community by taking time to really understand these multifaceted components to the story. Mm. Um, and and lastly, taking time to build relationships in those communities can help you become more sophisticated in your understanding of both their struggles and both the solutions that would empower them, right? Empower that community that would help them understand their own strengths and assets and, and to put them to work. Um, a lot of times when uh, I make this mistake, when I write about cities or I think about cities, it's very easy for me to think that I know what Waco needs. Um, but the reality is if I were to interview 10 people, what their actual struggles are would probably be very different from what I would prescribe. And so it might be difficult and uncomfortable to say, oh my gosh, this neighborhood is suffering from the consequences of redlining. What we need to do is really make sure everyone owns their own home. But if you went and interviewed all of those people, their perception of their need and what would actually help them and where their struggles are might actually be very different. They might not wake up every day thinking about, man, if redlining just hadn't happened, my life would be so much better. Their needs and their values might be in totally different places. So it's important to like be intentional to truly understand histories and how all these different complicated policy decisions or just like socioeconomic realities have, have shaped our neighborhoods. But when it comes to actually getting to know a specific community, it's really important to be sensitive about the potential gap between what we think that community might need and where their actual perceived needs are. Um, and sometimes that's sad because we want to feel like we're fixing the systemic problem, but actually the kids just might need tutoring, right? They might need access to financial literacy classes. The moms might need help with childcare, right? Mm -hmm. um, they might need better bus systems so that they can get to work, right? Yeah. So I think just being really humble about um, what we think the problem is and being humble enough to actually build relationships and, and, and get to know the story of those communities on their own terms. That's not to say that you can't do research on policy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and advocate for better, you know, so if you're yeah. noticing like discrimination and how tax 
uh, values are levied in these neighborhoods. That's an example, right? Where you can advocate, you can do research, you can run the numbers, you can get help to like make sure that kind of discriminatory practice isn't happening, right? And that's something you can change, right? It's not yeah. saying like, well, we can't change it because no one thinks it's a problem. Like, no, yeah. you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, Inequitable access to public transit that would free up tens of thousands of dollars for families that are currently having to spend that money on a on a private automobile. Like mm-hmm. that's an actual thing that can help people's lives, right? Um, there there are specific policy things you can do to improve people's um, terms of participation in the city, right? And to to make those better. Pastors, to answer your second question, are uniquely positioned, I think to build relationships based on, on really on listening. Right. I think they're just the role they fill in the, in the kind of ecosystem of relationships in cities is just so, um, so valuable, right. Because they're able not only to bring a theological perspective to certain issues or a, you know, a biblical view of human nature to these issues or a holistic understanding of all of reality is not just material or just human error and human power. We also have this view of reality where God and the spiritual realm, right? So our view of reality is just more robust as Christians. And that can give us uh, opportunities to to kind of speak to the other components of human suffering that perhaps you can't do if you just represent the private sector or you just represent mm-hmm. um, the public sector. Um, but I also think pastors play just a, I, I would say their their number one value is in building relationships facilitating into like good listening, facilitating, bringing people together who might not otherwise be able to talk to each other, mm-hmm. right? Bridge building, like presenting opportunities for reconciliation if that's what's needed or for um, people to share their stories, helping people who otherwise might not advocate for themselves, you know, providing them with the resources that they can do that, right? So really just this bridge building, relationship building, listening role. Um, I think pastors um, are are uniquely positioned to do that, um, and 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 I and I also don't think there's anything stopping pastors from becoming like the savviest civic, you mm-hmm. know, civically informed citizens mm-hmm. in their congregation to say like churches so often they shirk the public sector, and I'm like, it blows my mind. The more I get involved in my city, how there's so many opportunities to be. Uh, of an influence for truth and for goodness. And one very easy way churches can, can, can participate in these conversations is to go to council meetings, start getting involved in conversations about transit, get involved in conversations about land use, get involved in conversations about the schools. Like there's no need to leave this to like city, you know, nerds like me or experts, right. Who've got all these degrees and licenses. Like if churches just like encouraged a fourth, a third of their of their congregation to really take um, the time to be involved in these local conversations, I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to begin to advocate for um, a true a true vision of human flourishing. So, do the listening, get to know your neighborhood, but also go to city council. <laughs> you know, That's get good. get involved on that level as well. That's great. So two years ago, you moved from New York City to Waco, Texas, and you blogged about the stark, stark uh, contrast of mm-hmm. the two cities. Uh, could you share some of the takeaways about urban cities you came to learn throughout the process of uh, transitioning? 
Yeah, I'll share three quick ones. Um, we've touched on some of these already. I would say the first one would be the relationship between the design of our cities and the design of our lives. Um, so I wrote an article about this called um, City Pattern, Life Pattern. Basically, it's the idea that our cities are governed by actual patterns, right? If you look at a land map, you can look at what's called a zoning map, and it'll tell you very explicitly what can exist where in your city. Like, for instance, in my neighborhood in Waco, I, every time I do this, it makes me want to cry um, because sometimes I'll be like, man, I just want a falafel stand. Mm. <laughs> you know, I just, it's 11 o'clock. I'm hungry. I just want to pop in somewhere and get some falafel and go home. How I could do in New York, right? And I'll do this to myself. And I know that every single time I'm going to want to cry because I'll open Google Maps and I'll type in desperately. I'll just be like, food. <laughs> I just want to see a magical collection of tiny little mom and pop shops that are openly and then have yummy food for like $7. But if you do this, it never ceases to amaze me how you will see entire sections of the city with not a single pin. In other words, these are parts of the city that have been zoned for residential family only. The only thing allowed to be built there are homes. Right. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you'll see the little clusters of like businesses. 90% of them will be chains, right? Mm -hmm. And the only thing connecting us are roads full of cars, right? And streetlights, right? That's mm -hmm. a pattern. Single family housing, consolidated commercial businesses, and everything connected by driving. That wow. is a pattern. And that is going to shape the pattern of your life, right? So yeah. really paying attention to this of thinking like, wow, do a time journal, do a time journal of your week, do a city journal, right? Where do you go? How much time do you spend driving from place to place? Right. Who do you see spontaneously out and mm -hmm. about? Like how easy is it to change your agenda for the day and, and do something different, right? Mm. And you'll find very quickly, like, oh my gosh, like I get in a car, I drive to work, I drive to get the kids from school, right? write out the actual pattern of your life and then you'll begin to see how it overlays with this pattern yeah. of the city so i think that can really empower people to think about are you leading the life that you want are you able to take walks safely are your children able to play outside safely or are they going to get like run over by a truck like are you able to see your friends casually can you walk to a wine bar on friday night with your spouse and have a nice glass of wine and listen to live music why not Probably because those kinds of businesses are illegal in your neighborhood because of the way that it's zoned. So um, that's one thing that just has really come home to me because my pattern of life changed so dramatically moving from Brooklyn to Waco. Like so much is off the table. Spontaneous walks to get random food because I feel like it, right? Live music in the park, um, long bike rides to the beach, um, just leaving the house in a cute outfit because I feel like walking around and who knows what's going to happen. Walking mm. the neighborhood to take pictures of flowers because my name, my old neighborhood in Brooklyn, there were a lot of gardeners. So they would just plant all these flowers and every yeah. spring I would just yeah. walk up and down and take pictures. Um, meeting my neighbor at a bar and, and we realized we lived right next to each other and we both love, you know, cumbia and Latin dancing. So she and I would go find salsa dancing around town. Right. So it's just like, think about all the things that are not happening because of the way your city is designed. And that's just something that really stood out to me. So that's one, patterns matter. Um, number two, it'd be uh, the power of proximity. So this is really important for churches, but um, thinking about the social fabric of our cities, um, it, it just never ceases to amaze me 
the effect of the car, right? And the effect of suburban sprawl mm. on trying to build a sense, a meaningful sense of community. On one hand, I would love to live closer to people from church, right? I had the experience of living really close to a family from church in mm. this neighborhood I lived in, in Waco. I could, I had to cross two very busy, dangerous uh, roads to get there, but it was a very short walk, less than, less than half a mile, which meant I could hop over unannounced. I could, she could call me if she needed help at the last minute with the kids. I would go over there once a week for dinner. They will let me borrow their car because I didn't have a car. I just got it on my bike. So one day a week, I'd borrow the car to go to the grocery store. But I was having a bad day, which one time I did. I had like a really, really rough day. And I literally threw my shoes on and like ran to her house, like kind of crying. And she was there. Another family from church were there. And I just like stayed with them for like a couple hours, you know, just like calming down. Right. Um, so you just think about that, like back and forth, that kind of organic, unplanned back and forth that we could have just because we were so close to each other. Then I got married and I moved and now I'm 10 minutes driving from her and we have not, it's like extra, I mean, it's like exponentially more difficult for us to see each other, you know, like casually dropping by everything has to be scheduled and planned. So when you think about community and the flip side of this is that because our social lives are so curated now. We, we have our friends on Instagram, we have our friends from church, we have our friends from work, and nobody, none of these relationships, very few of them are actually based on actual proximity, actual mm. geographic proximity. So you have a bunch of people living next door to each other, but their sense of community is completely scattered, mm. or it's not even in the same city, it's, it's on a phone, right? So then you have this weird problem with like, wait, I live next to all of these people and it has com- almost become culturally unacceptable to meet your neighbors, right? It's like a big deal <laughs> if you meet your neighbors now. And it's like awkward because you're like, well, our lives actually inhabit completely different geographic spaces. What's going to bring us naturally together? You know, there's almost like nothing that naturally bring bonds people together who actually live together on the same street. So on one side, you have this problem of like, it's harder and harder to get to know your neighbors, even though the proximity problem is technically solved, but then the people you actually want to share life with, you know, it's, it's just all scattered. So Mm -hmm. I think moving from Brooklyn to Waco, um, just really amplified that problem. I had similar challenges building Christian community in Brooklyn. Um, It was harder to find people who, and, and, and I think yeah, it was just harder to find people who went to church with me, who also lived near me to really have that. And I think this is a struggle that churches really need to th- take seriously is it's like, wow, our definitions of community are going to be heavily shaped by geography, right? You might have something resembling community if you have life group, but Pete and everyone's driving to everything. That is something. I don't know if it's the type of community that that can be a meaningful part of our journey into being more like Christ. When you can't see each other in the context of ordinary life, right? When you're when you're not being you're not able to be there for each other or just to be around each other, run into each other, spontaneously have each other over for meals, we have lost something to the sort of sanctifying effect of being around other people with whom we share a core set of values and commitments. Um, so that would be number two, and I'd say number three would be the power of public space. Um, so Again, thinking about patterns, when you look at a map of your average suburban city, you have everything segregated by use, right? Um, Houses, businesses, work, school. We've kind of lost the idea of like, how about we have little collections of villages, you know, where you have everything kind of self-contained. 
Um, and part of what that means is that there's very little space or reason for people to spend time just in the city outside of a car. So you just really lose, the roads aren't really public space. The roads are for shuttling you back and forth in a car. Um, and so just, I feel like that's something that I've just really missed. I really miss yeah. just the spontaneous, I can just leave the house and go for a walk and inhabiting not my home, not a predetermined destination, but just the space of the city and seeing whatever I'm, what am I going to see? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll go over to Prospect Park. You know, there's plenty of space. There might be street, street musicians. Maybe I'll just walk up and down the street past people sitting outside and drinking coffee. So the idea of the city itself as a space to inhabit rather than just a home and just a car, it's like, we've lost that. And, um, it makes me really sad, especially when the weather is nice and I just want to walk home for a change. And in New York, I would do these long walks when the weather got nice because it was just so magical, you know, sure. and like, yeah, it smells like trash. And yeah, like, you know, it's kind of sketchy in some parts, but just the option to inhabit the city, just me as a human in my body, no mediation, just yeah. moving from between one neighborhood to the next. Um I've really just cultivated a deeper appreciation for that kind of third space, that middle space, right? Rather than just having to go immediately from my home to a car, to a destination. I, I want the middle spaces. Mm -hmm. I wish we had more of that. Um, so just, yeah. Yeah. You definitely clarify many things for me, at least. Uh, uh, I, I, I born and raised in a city and never been outside of cities. Still, this is where I am. It's fairly city alike because metro but it's not uh, manhattan it's not uh, brooklyn uh, but i totally understand uh, that desire and it's not you only who in your body walking um on those streets but other people are doing the same thing mm -hmm. the culture that you see in um in in city uh before we close out today's episode is there anything else you would like to add I don't think so. I think I'm really excited about everything we were able to cover. And I, I feel like um, we, we were really able to touch on so many different uh, components to this uh, fascinating conversation, fascinating topic of like, um, what is the city? Why does it matter? What does it mean to inhabit the city as a Christian and, and as a pastor? So yeah, I, I am really, really excited about what, everything we were able to talk about. Yeah. Tiffany, if listeners wants to get in touch with you, what are the easiest ways? Sure, you can um, find my website, citiesdecoded.org. There are a bunch of free resources there you can sign up for. There's a city discovery toolkit. It's eight steps to get to know your city better. There's also a meaningful action kit, which are, um, it's a five-step process for identifying a way that you can take meaningful action in a community that aligns with your strengths and interests and capacity. And then there's the latest uh, latest resource called um, Cities 101, it's a collection of curated resources to understanding the three most pressing issues in North American cities. So you can sign up for all of those for free. Um, if I would definitely start with the City Discovery Toolkit. Um, so you can find me there, citiesdecoded.org. You can also just email me, citiesdecoded at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at citiesdecoded. Great. That will be included in the episode's uh, description. And for the last thing, because uh, we talk about heavy topic, even though this one was more fun and uh, extremely important, uh, I'd like to ask you to tell a, tell a joke to lighten the mood. Um, it's uh, the way we started. I'm going to close with the more humanistic uh, way. 
not just uh, uh, knowledge and uh, uh, what we know, but rather who we are? Uh, surprisingly, this was the trickiest question for me because I'm not really good at jokes. <laughs> I, d I don't think about jokes that often, so I'm not going to lie that I definitely pulled up a list of funny jokes. <laughs> That's good. Um, since I'm recently married, I will go with this one. Um, why didn't the melons get married? Why? Because they can't elope. <laughs> that's good. Really good. I love it. No, so that's there you good. Go. That, that's, that's what I got. Thank you so much for being on the show again. That was Tiffany Owens Reed. And thank you to all our listeners. We truly could not do this without you. If you learned something, have a topic suggestion, or would like to leave us feedback, drop us a note at our urbanvoices.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in for more honest discussions from Diverse Voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. 